Every search you make, every click you take, they'll be watching you. Tired of companies like Google and Facebook watching everything you do online? There's actually a simple solution. DuckDuckGo. It's an all-in-one privacy app with a built-in private search engine, web browser, one-click data clearing, email protection, and more. All for free. Download the app today and get the most comprehensive privacy protection with the push of a button. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. Hello, everyone. This is Rosie Tran, and welcome to Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weibo.tv special report sponsored by our friends at DuckDuckGo. You may have heard my voice at the end of every episode on Weibo.tv. I'm the one asking you to leave a review. Which, by the way, I hope you've done, right? You've left us a review? Okay, great. Unless you're lying. <clears throat> well, I'm a lot more than a voice. I'm also Weibo.tv's intrepid reporter, and over the course of this miniseries, I'm going to share with you short, actionable tips you can use to protect your privacy. These tips were sourced by our fearless leader, he really hates when we call him that, BJ Mendelson. BJ, for those of you who may not know, is the author of the book Privacy and How We Get It Back, a book that was published in the before times. This means before COVID. BJ is currently writing a sequel called How to Protect Yourself from Fascists and Weirdos. So everything we're going to hear in this miniseries is the most up-to-date information he's researched, bringing us into 2023 and beyond. Throughout the series, you're also going to hear from some special guests and experts in the information security field. You hear that sound? That means it's time for today's privacy tip. You go to see your doctor because a mutant fungus has infected your brain. You haven't bitten anyone yet. You want to, but the right moment hasn't come. We've all been there. And as it turns out, being controlled by an evil fungus causes flowers to bloom on your face. While you consider this, 20 minutes go by and your doctor enters the room to take some pictures. She does this to figure out how to best treat you. As far as you and your doctor are concerned, nobody else will ever see these photos. That is, until some tech jackass comes into possession of them. Then, those photos with the flower on your face will be used to train generative artificial intelligence programs like ChatGPT3. Sound ridiculous? Unfortunately, this has already happened. I mean, the part about your medical photos finding their way onto the internet? Not the part about the malviolent fungus that will kill us all. A real possibility, according to National Geographic. But that's beyond the scope of this podcast. How did your photos find their way into the generative AI dataset? We're glad you asked. Here's how it happened using our fearless leader as an example. Whenever BJ has his monthly therapy appointment, he gets a text with a link to use a program called Freesia. The odds are good some of you listening have received a text like this, either from Freesia or a similar program. Since the pandemic, this sort of software has become widespread among doctor's offices and hospitals. Freesia and other software like MyChart are supposed to help your doctor's office better manage their patients. The thing is, Freesia also happens to be using your medical data to show you customized advertising while you're on their platform. So, for example, if you're like BJ and you suffer from OCD and you take sertraline to treat it, Freesia would show you advertisements for other medications related to the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder. The odds are good you didn't realize you consented to this kind of advertising and data mining, but you and BJ did when you first signed up to use the software. We just didn't know because the consent is intentionally buried deep in the terms and conditions. Freesia told the Washington Post that it does not sell or provide your data to third parties, but we'll leave it to you to decide if that's true or not. Regardless, the odds are good your medical data is already on the web thanks to these companies and their business arrangements with your hospital and doctors. That's how it can find its way into a generative AI data set. So to answer your first question, no, 
HIPAA does not protect your medical data from business associates as long as you've opted in, which we all do without realizing it. Business associates, by the way, is what Freesia and other companies categorize themselves as to circumvent HIPAA. Here's some good news. You can ask Freesia not to mine your medical information by emailing them at privacy at If your doctor's office is using a similar program or Freesia itself, you can also call your doctor's office and opt out of any data sharing arrangements they may have with their business associates. Unfortunately, until HIPAA is updated and revised, you and I must do the legwork to spot and remove our medical information. So let's talk about what steps you can take to do that. In previous episodes, we recommend using the DuckDuckGo browser, but we also mentioned a couple exceptions, and this is one of them. Use Tor to visit any and all websites that involve your healthcare. Tor doesn't cost you a thing, but just keep in mind it's super slow when using it. The DuckDuckGo browser should knock out other things collecting your health information like Facebook tracking pixel, but Tor is the safest bet. Because it's not just companies like Freesia you need to worry about. Facebook, and to a lesser extent, LinkedIn, TikTok, and Twitter all have tracking pixels on their thousands of websites. These websites include your hospitals and doctor's office. So when it comes to your medical information, better to be absolutely safe when visiting these websites. In addition to using Tor, you should use the link in today's show notes and visit PimEyes.com. PimEyes will take a picture of your face and then scan the internet for anywhere your face may be present online. After you locate where these photos are, you can ask them to be removed. Then you'll want to visit HaveIBeenTrained.com. When you get there, you'll need to create an account, but don't worry, it's free. HaveIBeenTrained.com searches the most extensive image datasets currently used to train generative AI software. This site will then allow you to opt out and remove any images that may have found their way into that dataset. So for example, if you don't know where to start, you can use the images on PimEyes.com to search HaveIBeenTrained.com. Speaking of opting out, there are a couple more things we want to let you know about. First, there's a creepy company called Clearview AI. Clearview AI uses facial recognition to provide information about you to the police and other parties. Those parties can do whatever they want with your photos, including selling them to generative AI companies to train their software. The odds are good Clearview AI has a lot of pictures of you. We've included a link below for you to opt out. Any chance you get to opt out of data collection, you absolutely should. This brings us to our second and last point. When patients talk to their doctors about opting out of services like Freesia, doctors have been known to say things like, who cares, your information is out there anyway. This, as you might have guessed if you're listening to the show, is pretty fucked up. So we've set up a list of data brokers you should request have your data removed over at bjmendelson.com. We'll be working on updating and revising the list over the rest of 2023. That link can also be found on today's show notes. But listen, it takes a lot of time to track what data brokers have collected on you. So if you're looking for a fast way to clean up your info, because every time you do something on the web, you create more data for these assholes to collect, we recommend a service called Delete Me. Delete Me is constantly scanning the web for your information and removing it as it finds it. So if you've got the extra money, we can't recommend this service enough. Now that we've finished up BJ's first book on privacy, the remaining episodes of this show will feature interviews with special guests and experts in the privacy and security field. This week, we're gonna share with you an interview with Matthew Green. Matthew is an associate professor of computer science at John Hopkins Informational Security Institute. We were supposed to run Matthew's interview last week, but we had a technical hiccup. Matthew can be reached at matthewdgreen at gmail.com. BJ promises not to upset any more ancient deities to prevent this from happening again. Hi, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Would you be so kind as to take a moment to introduce yourself? 
my name is Matthew Green. I'm an associate professor at Johns Hopkins University, uh, and I work on computer science and cryptography. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time because you wrote this terrific article called, called Why Encrypted Backup uh, is So Important. And, and this episode that people are listening to talks a lot about that. Uh, one of the things we recommend is not bothering with cloud storage at all and, and just sort of uh, using VeraCrypt and putting things on an external hard drive. Uh, do you think that that's, that's an, the method to go with or is there a better way? Well, you know, it kind of depends what you're you're optimizing for, right? So if your goal is to be as secure as possible in your own life and you're not worried about people, you know, breaking into your house, um, yeah, I, I think you've got a great approach, right? Like get a get a great external hard drive, maybe get two of them, uh, back up all of your information locally, put it somewhere, you know, very safe and uh, maybe put it in two different places in case your house burns down. I'm being really paranoid here. <laughs> and, and you know, the, the advantage of this is none of your data is going to be on somebody else's computer, right? It's going to be in a place you control. The disadvantage is, you know, cloud storage is really good. Right. Like the reason we want to upload things to the cloud is that we all have had a history where, you know, at some point in our lives, we backed something up to a disk or to a, you know, an external hard drive and we couldn't get it back. And that almost never happens with modern consumer cloud storage. It works really well and it's transparent. It does everything for you. It's kind of, except for all the security stuff, it's kind of the perfect system for protecting your data. Yeah, let me, let me ask you about some of the security stuff because I think as you were writing the post, Apple rolled out. Uh, some much, much long anticipated upgrades. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference before and after those upgrades have been rolled out? Yeah. So one of the biggest problems with cloud storage in general is that, you know, you are uploading your data to a, a company's computer. And that means a bunch of bad things, right? So if somebody guesses your password or gets, you know, a customer service representative to reset your password, they can basically download a whole copy of your device. And, you know, back in the days, you know, 1990s or 2000, this, that was annoying, right? It meant you might lose, you know, a few files. Nowadays, we're talking about our entire lives, right? Where your phone is kind of everything. I have photos going back to the birth of my son and he's like 15. And so, you know, everything that I have is on either one of my laptop or my phone. And the idea of that information being lost forever is really terrifying to me. And so, you know, okay, so you upload it to the cloud. The problem is now anybody who guesses your password is able to make a complete copy of your entire life. That's pretty disastrous. It also means for people who are worried about, you know, government invasion, it also means that law enforcement can basically send a warrant to a company like Apple or Dropbox or whatever and get a full copy of all your stuff and go through it. I actually know someone who, believe it or not, had this happen to them. And they only found out years later, they got a note from the provider saying, by the way, you know, everything that you've ever done has been handed over to the government. And sorry about that. We weren't allowed to tell you. And so, oh, wow. yeah, it's a, it's a thing that can happen. And, you know, I'm not saying that most people have to worry about the second thing, but everybody has to worry about the first thing, right? It is not that hard to break into somebody's cloud storage account. Yeah, I mean, I think the most famous incident, at least in recent memory, is uh, what happened with Jennifer Lawrence, which we uh, mentioned on the show, which involved the iCloud. Uh, how much do you think these security breaches are caused by us not taking our passwords seriously versus someone that just really wants to mess with you? I think a lot of them are weak passwords, right? So, but but think about it. It's not your fault that you pick a bad password. Right, that's right. I mean, 
you know, your phone, like how many times in the last week has your phone made you enter that password, right? You know, I'm talking about your cloud storage one. I, I'm constantly being pestered by my iPhone to enter my iCloud account uh, password. And, you know, you're typing it on a little keyboard on this phone and you're doing it multiple times per week. And and it's it's hard to pick a great password, even if you're like a computer science professional. It's really hard to do it if you have to enter it all the time on a tiny little keyboard. And so people don't, and that's understandable. And so, you know, bad password words lead to situations where people can, you know, guess your password. And then also there's not just your password, there are your security questions. And then people who get your email account can sometimes get resets of your password that way. And even with all that stuff in place, some people are smart enough to basically call up customer service reps and swap out, you know, get, get your account reassigned without even having the rights to do it. It's happened a bunch of times. So there are lots of ways in. Is there anything you would recommend people not put in cloud storage? Like, is there certain things that you would just say, okay, that should never go up there? I mean, here's the thing. Whether you do it or not, almost everybody you know is uploading every single photo they take, every single personal text that they write to cloud storage, right? So, like, there's a question of what you do and there's a question of what society does. Right. And, you know... You might be the outlier who is paranoid. You might be the person who lives in a cabin in the woods in Montana. That's probably a bad analogy because I think I'm talking about the Unabomber now. But like, <laughs> you, might, you might be the person who takes extraordinary steps to protect yourself. But the person you're talking to on those texts probably doesn't, right? And that person is uploading their data to the cloud. So just keep in mind that, you know, like almost everything you do is going to wind up in the cloud in some form Anyway, what would I not upload? I'm trying to think about my life, right? The most personal things that I have are, you know, photos of my kids or my family, you know, even things like where you might have some people like, I'm too old for this, but they take (laughs) intimate photos on their phone. That's pretty personal. And, you know, you might be doing more personal stuff, but most people just take those photos and it goes up to the cloud anyway. I wouldn't want to have that stuff in a cloud server that's unprotected, but in reality, I think we're just way past the point where people are picking and choosing. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's something we've touched on a little bit in the show is that privacy is a community effort uh, more than more than an individual effort at this point. I'm a Facebook hipster. I then deleted my Facebook account and then re-upped it in 2005 and have not been able to get off the stupid thing since. So, so why can't you get off? So, what, what are your <laughs> <laughs> you guys. <laughs> the award-winning Smashing Security Podcast, hosted by Graham Cluley and Carol Terrio each week. It takes an irreverent look at cybersecurity and online privacy, helping you find out what's happening with your data. Find it in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps, or at smashingsecurity.com. It's not all filth. So, Matt, o- over in the European Union right now, there's there's a debate about um, what what can be scanned by the government in terms of um, looking for like sensitive photos, including child pornography. Uh, and, and there's a debate about like, you know, if you upload something to the cloud, who gets to look at what's in there? Could you just explain for us a little bit about the debate around the encryption and whether or not there's, I guess, too much encryption for the government? Yeah, there's a big debate, right? People are, 
people are on all sides of this, right? Governments want everything to be secure and they want all devices to be perfectly secure. So they demand this of, you know, device manufacturers and cloud providers. And they care about this, not just because they want, you know, individual citizens to be secure. They are demanding this because the people, you know, there's no such thing as the iPhone that, you know, a CEO uses and the iPhone that you use. They're the same phone. Right. And so when society has insecure devices, everybody has insecure devices all the way up sometimes, you know, to people who are in high levels of government, maybe not the president. The president might get a secure phone. Everybody else doesn't. And so this is a really big deal to them. But at the same time, they're terrified. Governments and law enforcement are terrified of the idea that someday they're not going to be able to access people's data. These tools um, for the, the ability to basically, it used to be wiretapping where you would like go and you would plug some wires onto, uh, you know, some telegraph cables or some telephone cables and you would listen to a specific conversation. But nowadays those tools have evolved very recently to this idea that you can just go and ask a provider for someone's entire, you know, mailbox or their entire Dropbox full of files and you get everything or you get a copy of their phone. And this is just incredibly useful for law enforcement. And, you know, they haven't had that capability for more than maybe 10 years, maybe 12 years, but they're terrified of losing it and they think that it will be very bad for law enforcement. So there's this push from both sides where it really feels kind of split brain where, you know, one side of government, one hand of government is demanding better security and encryption is the only way we really know how to do that well. And the other is saying you can't encrypt things because if you do, um, you know, national security will be at risk. It's really hard to respond to. Yeah, uh, I, I know it's one of those debates I don't really have a position on because I can, I, you know, I can see both sides of it very easily. Um, but you're right, it goes all the way back to, in at least the United States, World War One, uh, when the government started to collect information uh, on citizens, you know, when they passed the Espionage Act. Uh, what what should people know, though? Like, what is this something that they should be concerned about? Is it something that we should be following or is it something we should kind of let the experts um, hash out? Um, I, I think it's something we should be concerned about. Uh, and I will say this as a computer security professional, right? The only technology we have ever invented that works well for protecting your device is encryption. All software is garbage. All hardware is kind of garbage and it's really easy to hack. And the only place where we feel any really good confidence is when your data is encrypted with a key that's not available to the attacker. Like that is a place where even the best hackers just say, ah, you know, like this is a wall. And so obviously that's where device manufacturers and cloud providers have gone when they try to want to deploy real security. That's why Apple uses so much encryption. Um, the minute we start saying you can't use encryption or we have to have keys for that encryption available all over the place, then we're basically saying, you know, look, look, you've got you've got one one wrench that works. You can't use that wrench like we're, we're toast. It's a very bad place to be. Right. Yeah. And I think it's something that you pointed out is that I think the knowledge level for most consumers when it comes to encryption is still a little limited. Like they're not quite sure, you know, what that means and where those keys are storage, uh, which could lead to all sorts of problems. Yes. Uh, could you, what, what should, what's like the, I hate asking this question because it's such a journalist question to ask, but uh, on like a very high level, what do people need to know about encryption just so that they're better informed? Okay. What you need to know about encryption is it's basically a way of taking your data and mathematically transforming it into something that nobody else can read. And this is done using a key. And the key is the, you know, exactly what it sounds like, right? Like a key to a safe. It, it, it's the mathematical piece of information. It's basically a big secret number that lets you turn that information back. 
And what you need to know about modern encryption is it has gotten good enough that basically it's unbreakable. Even the NSA can't break modern encryption based on, you know, all that we've learned from the Snowden leaks. They can break it when there's a mistake in it. They can break it when they can steal those keys. They can't break it otherwise. So this is, you know, really powerful stuff. Now, where does that come into your life? Well, the, probably the place that you encounter it the most is that when you type in every day, you wake up and your phone probably forces you to type in a passcode. What's actually happening there is your passcode is your encryption key with a few details swept under the rug. And all the data on your phone is encrypted. And the only way that police can get into that phone with a lot of details swept under the rug is, you know, to guess your password. And usually they only get a few attempts and that's police or, but it's not just police, right? It's also, you know, the person, when you leave your phone in a cab with all your photos and your whole life in it, it's also the next person who comes into that cab and says, oh, look, free phone or, you know, whatever. And so this is the thing that's protecting you is that all the the data on your phone is encrypted using a password that only you know. And so that's that's the biggest thing you need to know about encryption. But the second thing you need to know about encryption is that the big loophole to this protection is that most people have cloud backup turned on. And every night, their phone makes a copy of all the data on their phone. And up until recently, that copy, the copy that's sitting up in some server at Apple or at Google, has been unencrypted. Or rather, it's been at least encrypted with a key that is known to Apple or known to Google. And that means they can basically decrypt it. So it's the same as being unencrypted. And so unfortunately, that's been the big loophole. Someone who can get into your cloud storage can bypass all that wonderful encryption. Yeah. And so I, sometimes when we talk about encryption, people will ask about crypto. Um, so is it okay if I ask you a couple of questions about Yeah, that? sure. Uh, so I, you have a trem- also another tremendous post, which I'm going to link to, um, called In Defense of Cryptocurrency. Uh, and you touch on the thing that I'm always the most concerned about is the, the cost of it to the environment. Uh, so could you just elaborate a little bit on that? Because I think a lot of people discuss it and maybe not necessarily understand what that discussion is. Yeah, yeah. Just to be clear, we, there's two different words. Uh, there are two different words here. One is cryptocurrency and one is cryptography. Yes. And crypt, crypto, now everyone uses the word crypto. It used to be crypto meant cryptography. And uh, then cryptocurrency came along, Bitcoin came along. And now crypto means cryptocurrency. And we're, we're as cryptographers, we're all very sad about that, but we've given up. Right. Um, and <laughs> so the thing you need to know is that cryptography, the, the science of an encryption and, and making things hard for people to read who aren't authorized, that technology isn't bad for the environment. It's very efficient, very fast, doesn't have anything to do with, you know, burning tons of coal or whatever it is that, that Bitcoin is doing. Bitcoin has a specific use of some algorithms. And one of the features of it is that the security that they use to, to basically decide who gets to make decisions on the network is based on uh, how much electricity you burn. And so, you know, that that's, you know, it's it's a wording issue. It's a Bitcoin thing, not a not a cryptography thing. And Bitcoin uses a lot of power and it shouldn't and it's bad and it doesn't need to, but it really has nothing to do with the encryption on your phone. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that and thank you for for clarifying. Let me let me ask um just one more thing on this front. Uh you you have an objection in the blog post that but it says like there is no privacy on blockchains. And we had uh Frank or Hearn uh, in an earlier episode, talk about some of the privacy loopholes uh, involved with the cryptocurrency. But I, I just wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on the point that you made that there's no privacy on the blockchains, because I think a lot of people uh, tend to think that there is. Yeah. Uh, so one of the big problems with Bitcoin and, and many blockchains is that every transaction is public. 
So think of it like the whole thing is basically a public bulletin board where if I spend money, if I pay you five bucks, the fact that I paid you five bucks is on a public bulletin board like in the middle of the mall where anybody can go check it out. And so that that seems like a really bad thing, right? Like let's imagine that, you know, I pay my psychiatrist, you know, some money people might not want to admit that they're seeing a psychiatrist. So that the fact that that's not private, a lot of people are, you know, would be very unhappy with that. The reason that this is a little confusing to people is that when you use a blockchain, you don't say I'm paying Matt Green a certain amount of money. What you do is you send that money to a, a big number, which is called an address, a Bitcoin address. So it's more like, think about it this way. Imagine that you had a bulletin board where instead of, you know, seeing that, you know, Matt Green got paid five bucks, you saw my phone number instead. And you might think, hey, it's just my phone number. It's not my name. How is anyone going to connect that to me? The problem is that those numbers, those addresses can be connected to your identity by people who do a lot of data science stuff. And they they can collect information about your transactions and then guess that this number means you. And then every time they see that number on this public blockchain, then they can say, oh, Matt Green's doing spending some money or receiving some money. And and that that kind of privacy issue, you know, it, it superficially appears private, but it's not. Right. And just one last question on this front is uh you so you talk about payments being important, which is something that we've we've discussed. You know, we, we tell people to use privacy.com uh, whenever possible, just as one example. Uh, but can you tell us why the discussion around the cryptocurrency is so important from the payments front? Well, I think that cryptocurrency is, <laughs> people have a lot of feelings about cryptocurrency, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, it is a genuinely new technology and it does something that we haven't been able to do before. The thing, the thing to keep in mind is that all of the ways that we did banking and payments in the past have been based on trust, right? I have to trust Visa because I have to trust that, you know, the, the store that I'm paying has to trust that, that Visa is eventually going to come through and, you know, give them the money that I, I supposedly just paid them with my plastic card. And that means Visa has to be a really big company with a ton of money backing them and lots of regulation. And the theory, the theory of things like Bitcoin, not Bitcoin specifically, but cryptocurrency, is we can build systems that have less trust, which means smaller companies without billions and billions of dollars can start doing things like payments. And that should mean lower costs ultimately for consumers. That's the good side of it. The bad side of it is, of course, everybody has seen that also means that a lot of very scammy companies can get involved in this area. And, you know, if people, if regulators aren't on top of that, you can get people like FTX who claim to be a cryptocurrency exchange, take a bunch of people's money and then apparently don't keep any of it. And so the technology itself is very promising, but it also enables a lot of, you know, scammy and problematic behavior. Figuring out a way through that is tough. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, things like FTX just uh, does untold damage uh, to the public's perception and willingness to to look into these technologies. Uh, let me ask you, just wrapping up. So when, when you teach at John Hopkins, like, what do you what are you seeing with your students in terms of, how, you know, how they approach or think about privacy? Yeah, I, I think that the nice, the interesting thing is that I, I talk to a lot of these students and they're, you know, they're all 20 year olds approximately plus or minus and uh you know wow younger people i know i sound so old i'm i'm, I'm 46 by <laughs> you the and way I both <laughs> <laughs> um, younger people have a different attitude towards privacy i used to feel militant about the idea that we were losing our privacy and you know all these these future social networks and systems people were building were going to be terrible for us and we have to fight this um younger people are not as militant about this i think many of them have just decided you know so what right all my data is being collected and it, 
big deal. And actually, you know, I admire them, right? Like if you are totally unselfconscious about the fact that the whole world is spying on you and you're not worried about anything, maybe that's a healthier attitude than us, you know, older people being worried about all our secrets and losing them. Um, with that said, you know, we actually are on the cusp of a kind of a technological revolution where we can actually get privacy back using things like encryption. And so I'm really hoping I can inspire some of these students to care about that and make that keep going. Yeah. And so something I found in the research is, you know, you know if you're a Gen X or a baby boomer, you're very concerned about privacy. If you are a millennial like I am and uh, a Gen Z, you're you're less concerned until you mention the police, right? Mm-hmm. Like with the, the second that the police is mentioned, I think people uh, across all, all ages seem to have a... a a uh, reaction to it uh, that's that's adverse and negative and they think okay well that's yeah, that's I, what i need to care yeah oh. i think it's really interesting i have not figured out quite how to connect those two impulses but i think there's a connection there it's it's really interesting to see how people make that connection yeah so do you recommend do you ever find yourself giving them privacy tips like are there things that you recommend to your students pretty consistently yeah i, I mean like the biggest privacy tips are use really strong passwords use a good password manager don't use LastPass, but use another one that's good. Like I, I like one password, for example. Um, use a good password manager. Pick strong passwords. Turn on encryption features. Apple just announced this uh, advanced data protection for iCloud. It's a little annoying. You have to flip a few switches in the settings, and it'll ask you a few questions. But once you turn it on, the only people who can get into your iCloud backups are people who know your phone's password. And that could be you. It could be you and, you know, your partner or whatever, but it won't be anybody else. I really recommend you do that as long as you can remember a password. If you forget that password, you're in very bad shape. Um, so there are things you, that I tell my students to do that I would tell everyone here to do. Yeah, I mean, the thing we, we recommend in, in this, this series is the privacy notebook. You know, like keeping, you know, come up with a complex passcode, but write it down uh, so that you always have it uh, on paper somewhere. Uh, Do you find that, do you find that the students are receptive when you tell them that or do they still kind of shrug it off? Yeah, no, I think they are receptive because the one thing they're terrified, they're not, this is not a privacy concern, but they're terrified of losing control of their digital identity. Yes. And I mean, I am too, right? But like, this is something that everyone cares about. It's not quite the same as being worried that the police are collecting information on you, but it is a big concern. And I think they they are receptive to that. Absolutely. Uh, and so my last question for you is just, is there anything that, that when you do interviews like this, that you're not asked, that you're often like, oh, I wish, I wish they had asked that so I can mention that? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, a uh, really good question. Um, the biggest thing that I would say is, you know, Look, for the most part, if you're using decent devices, if you're using modern up-to-date software, you're installing security updates, you're probably in pretty good shape. Use two-factor authentication and so on. Um, yeah, the, 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 the big question that people basically ask me is, you know, like, are we ever going to gonna solve this problem, right? Like, is, is this just a temporary thing? And I think the answer is actually, it's all going to get worse. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, no. You know, I, if you ask me about the future, um, the answer I would give you is that we are never going to solve this problem and it is going to come down to people really understanding what they're doing. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe that's not really a question you could ask me, but <laughs> the <laughs> advice I would give you is you have to educate yourself because otherwise don't expect anyone to fix it for you. Yep. I mean, that that's exactly why the show exists. <laughs> for that exact, I have that same concern. Uh, yeah. So do you think that, like, are you optimistic at all about the, the quantum computers that they talk about in terms of quantum encryption? 
I, I, you know, I, uh, quantum computers are actually very scary because they can break some of our public key encryption. Uh, so we're developing new encryption that can deal with that. They're still hopefully decades out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm optimistic that we have a lot of technological progress to make and that's good. It's going to be good for us in the long run because we'll be able to do things that, you know, we can't do right now. And usually that's good. We'll see if it's all good. Yeah. Uh, Maddie, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. Tired of being tracked online? DuckDuckGo can help. Tracking is a comprehensive program. Trackers lurk nearly everywhere online from websites, emails, and even apps in your phone. That means you need a multi-pronged solution. DuckDuckGo's all-in-one privacy app can be used as an everyday browser with private search, tracking, blocking, encryption, and now email protection built in. It's the free, easy button for online privacy. Download the app today. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. Thank you for listening to Stupid Sexy Privacy, a Weibo.tv special report. I'm your host, Rosie Tran. Today's episode was written by BJ Mendelson, produced by Andrew Van Voris, and sponsored by DuckDuckGo. Due to the overwhelming demand for privacy audits, we want to make a quick announcement before we go. Doing one-on-one privacy audits is super time-consuming. This means BJ has less time to write these episodes and the new book, How to Protect Yourself from Fascists and Weirdos. So... Along with his co-author, Amanda King, BJ is currently putting together an online course called Stupid Sexy Privacy, which you'll be able to purchase here at stupidsexyprivacy.com. The course will walk you through every privacy tactic discussed in today's episode in greater detail. If you'd like to know when the course becomes available, you can email BJ at bjmendelson at duck.com. The email address again is bjmendelson at duck.com. And we'll see you next time, right? <laughs>